On this week's episode of Cultivating Her Space. What's liberating for me is knowing that nothing is inevitable. Like the way things are, aren't the way things have to be. Things don't have to continue on this track. Like seeing the fugitive spaces that were created that are divergent has been liberating for me. It gives me hope. I'm not an optimist, actually, which is why I needed to hold on to something real. I needed to see something real and existing to be like, okay, we can do that thing. Today's episode is sure to provide you with motivation, inspiration, or a fresh perspective. If you have any aha moments or appreciate anything from this episode, please leave us a review to let us know we're on the right track. Also, we release episodes every Friday, so be sure to subscribe on iTunes and visit cultivatingherspace.com to access our exclusive after show and other bonus content from the Patreon tab. Welcome to Cultivating Her Space, a podcast dedicated to uplifting women like you. We're your hosts, Dr. Dominique Broussard, a college professor and psychologist, and Terry Lomax, a techie and motivational speaker. In a world where Black women are often misrepresented and misunderstood, please join us as we initiate authentic conversations on everything from fibroids to fake friends and create a safe space where Black women can just be. Hey, lady, it's Dr. Dom here from the Cultivating Her Space podcast. Are you currently a resident of the state of California? and contemplating starting your therapy journey? Well, if so, please reach out to me at drdominiquebroussard.com. That's D-R-D-O-M-I-N-I-Q-U-E-B-R-O-U-S-S-A-R-D.com to schedule a free 15-minute consultation. I look forward to hearing from you. Lady, we are so excited. We have a very special guest today, so we're just going to jump right on in to her bio and then dive into this juicy conversation. A former educator in urban schools, Crystal drew on her personal experience, African diaspora and history, and her Guyanese and African-American roots to found Emancipated, where she develops research-based educational experiences that center Black communities. In her flagship product, she draws on the stories of maroon communities, Africans who freed themselves from slavery and created hidden societies to offer black and brown families a model for how to navigate as liberated beings within oppressive systems. She lives in the Bay Area or the Yay Area, as she affectionately refers to it, and enjoys reading, Marvel movies, and daydreaming of black futures. Dr. Crystal Menzies, welcome to Cultivating Her Space. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. I love the podcast, by the way. Thank Thank you, girl. (laughs) I'm honored to be here. Well, we are so excited to have you and we are ready to jump into this conversation. And so we're going to start with our quote of the day, which will sound familiar to you because these are your words. Despite what most history books teach us, Black folks consistently resisted enslavement and oppression. 
So I'm going to say that one more time in case you didn't get this. <laughs> Despite what most history books teach us, Black folks consistently resisted enslavement and oppression. Dr. Crystal, when you wrote that statement and then thinking about the work that you do, why does that particular statement mean so much to you? I would say this whole thing I'm doing with Emancipate Ed really emerged from a lifetime experience of, of experiences that pushed me to, motivated me to disrupt what we know about Black history. Stemming from experiences I had as a teacher and seeing what I was forced to teach and getting in trouble for teaching other things. And really also seeking my own liberation. Like, okay, I'm trying to live as this liberated being. How do I do that when I'm surrounded and experiencing all of these systems that seek to, to oppress me? I am so excited for this conversation. And Dr. Crystal, I want to put some respect on your organization's name, Emancipate Ed. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I want to <laughs> ask you, what is your origin story and what led you to the founding of Emancipate Ed? Okay. <sighs> I can tell a lifetime of stories, but I won't. <laughs> I would say the first, it's really a culmination of like teaching, travel, my doctoral studies, which are grounded in a critical race theory, and just navigating this world and like, this can't be it. There must be something else. And the first seed was planted when I was a teacher. I taught eighth grade U.S. history in California. And I'm an HBCU grad. So I was like, you're going to learn all the stuff I learned in college <laughs> to eighth graders. Okay. So we're going to learn about <laughs> enslavement, not just as a, a thing that happened in the past, but how it affected like our society, our culture, our economics to this day and psychology and all the things. But I, one of my black students told me one day, like, why are we learning about black folks all the time? I'm like, huh? Whoa. These your people. Oh, <laughs> but right. when I probed more, they were, I was making sure they learned the horrors of enslavement. Like this isn't just people were bad sometimes. And, you know, this is a whole structure of uh, dehumanization. But I wasn't telling the full story of Black folks' experience in America. So that came out as I like asked more questions. Like, what you talking about? And so I decided to design a unit on rebellions of enslaved people in the Americas. And my kids ate it up. I mean, they loved it. It was one of the most exciting experiences I had as a teacher, just seeing all the little light bulbs go off. And I just happened to be observed that day. And I got written up because it wasn't a one, because it wasn't a high priority standard. So we were supposed to teach what's a high priority standard because that means it's more likely to be tested. Two, she had a problem as a white woman principal with the content. It made her uncomfortable. Of course, of course it, it did. did. <laughs> oh, Karen, come on. Listen, and I'm like, you know, my kids tested well. They met all your metrics of all the things that you consider successful. Let me do my thing sometimes, okay? And it was there where, you know, we talk about systems. That was an exact example of how a system seeks to hide 
stories from us and punish those who try to reveal those stories to us. And especially because it emerged out of seeing how my students were reacting to the constant learning about the traumas and enslavement and things. So from there and lost some students to violence. And I was like, okay, I'm doing all the things they tell me to do in the classroom, but there's larger things at play that I wanted to learn. My initial goal was to learn more so I can like seek to do my part in trying to dismantle some of these things. So I went to Philly, <laughs> Temple University, Urban Education Program, which is rooted in critical race theory. And so speaking of you don't learn today, I mean, it was very much, we're going to, you're going to put these glasses on and you're going to be able to identify all the shenanigans and all the systems all the time. And I loved what I was studying, but I, it also left me wanting more. Like, how do we get in a great education to dismantle, to identify and dismantle? But how do you, what comes after that? How do I build something different? And I needed it for my spirit because I was feeling sad and depressed. I, graduate school is very, can be a very isolating experience, even with the homies. And so for my dissertation research, I wanted to look and, oh, and I was tired of them talking about Black folks, like problems to be fixed in Black students. So I wanted to problematize their problematization of Black students. And so a framework I really love was community cultural wealth, which essentially looks at our strengths and cultural assets. So aspirational capital, familial capital, social capital, all these different ways of being that oppressed peoples have learned to survive and also to, in our own ways, thrive in these systems. So, and that like fed my spirit and I wanted more of that spirit filling work. So I entered the ed reform nonprofit sector. Now I was naive. Okay. <laughs> Aren't we all at some point? Though? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was naive. This is not, these were not grassroots nonprofits. Okay. This was, these were not the folks who were from the community and start, saw a need and built something. These were folks who parachuted in with all their money and all their saviorism. But I didn't know that, but the missions were amazing. And the vision and mission of these orgs, they were using terms like anti-racist before it became the term de jour. I was like, okay, they know what they talk about. Man, I got a rude awakening. <laughs> and saw that folks were really interested in talking about it, but not necessarily in being about it. And as a lifetime educator, you know, my first inclination is to be like, okay, maybe it's a knowledge gap. You're using the words, but don't know where they mean. You don't know where they come from. And so I participate in a lot of organizational change initiatives to kind of operationalize this and then was met with a lot of resistance me myself and the folks who are leading this work from leaders and i was like okay you actually don't need to do these things so left one org went to another hoping it would be better it wasn't it was same shit different day <laughs> so then that's that sad sadness started to weigh on me again where can i go and exist and still eat food <laughs> and put a roof over my head as a person who's trying to do better and be better within the midst of these jobs and systems that encourage the opposite type of behavior. 
And it was through, and I've always loved maroon communities and been obsessed with them, but they were something I kept separate. You know, it's like, oh, it's just an interest of mine. It has nothing to do with my work. And through that kind of angst of what can I do? This can't be it. Looking at my bookshelf and saw Slavery's Exiles, a book about maroons. And I was like, hmm, maroon communities were literally free spaces in the midst of oppressive systems. So then it was like, how does one become a maroon? And I created this whole framework of like getting free. And my friend was like, this is amazing, but nobody even knows who maroons are. <laughs> so the first product I developed is just, is hidden history cards to share the stories of this is who maroons are. So we want to talk about maroonage. First, we need to know who we talk about. Listen, people definitely need to put some respect on your name because you you are out here doing the work that so many people talk about, but don't actually do. And there's lots of reasons why. But they don't actually do and you are doing it. Now, before we we go in and talk more about maroon communities, because I know that a lot of our listeners don't know what maroon communities are. I want to go back and I want you to share with us your family history and, and speaking about and talk to, tell us why maroon communities were, are so important to you. Great question. So my maternal side of the family is from Texarkana, Arkansas. My maternal grandmother and my grandfather was from Longview, Texas, and they migrated to California during the Great Migration. And my dad's side of the family is from Guyana in South America and immigrated here around the same time my maternal side of the family did. <clears throat> and my grandfather in particular was very community and social justice oriented. My grandmother as well, but grandpa was definitely... I'm going to make a way. So he used to help smuggle immigrants into the country. Um, <laughs> he used to teach naturalization classes so folks could earn their citizenship. He was a long, edu long time educator in LAUSD. And so you're just being around that energy consistently. And my grandmother, his wife founded Guyana Medical Relief. And my grandmother just passed away actually uh, three weeks ago. So I've been thinking a lot about legacy. I feel the word is used a lot, especially when it comes to finances, but there's legacy is so expansive and the seeds, my grandparents and parents through them, my parents planted in me to like, what can you do to make your little piece of the world better? Which also means making yourself better has <laughs> been like a lifelong motivation. And I was always encouraged and pushed to think differently in my, just in our regular family conversations. and so. And especially on the West Coast, there's not many Guyanese folks. We don't have the same concentration as like a New York does or even a Florida. So all the Caribbean folks, Jamaicans and everybody were always at my grandparents' house <laughs> because my grandpa loved to cook. His whole mantra was real men cook. So <laughs> big, you know, pots of pepper pots and all the curries, curry goat, curry shrimp, curry crab. And you'd hear like little stories of things of Queen Nanny. And like, who's Queen Nanny? And like a Jamaican's going to tell you who Queen Nanny is, okay? <laughs> and so that's where the interest first started. It's just, again, those little seeds. There was never a formal 
let's sit down and learn about maroons, Crystal. But just like sitting at the feet of my grandparents and their friends and families picked up a lot, which made me want to learn more because I was fascinated. Like I had never, and still to this day, had never heard of maroon communities within a formal education environment. What a rich history. That's amazing. And I think that it's so telling that you're doing the work that you're doing based on the upbringing that you had. And I do also want to say sorry for your loss that you that you just lost your grandmother three weeks ago. So thank you for being here with us in this space, you know, after losing her. So we want to talk a bit about, we've said maroon communities, you know, a few times in the episode so far. Can you talk a bit about who maroon or what are maroon communities and why is it necessary for them to create the systems that they did create? So maroon communities were free rebel black societies throughout the Americas. So that rebel word is intentional. So folks who ran away from slavery, we call it self-emancipated, ran away from enslavement and started their own free societies hidden away from plantation society. So it's not equivalent of like running away to Canada and living free. These folks were in jungles and mountains and swamps, places that are very difficult to access. And had a lot of self-defense measures. Camouflage was a big, a big deal in maroon communities. And some still exist. So Jamaica has four large communities. Suriname has a massive <laughs> maroon. I think they're the largest maroon group still in existence today. Colombia. So there are definitely some communities that were still able to sustain, sustain despite the onslaught, because they were a threat to colonial society. So they were constantly being attacked and the reason they were felt it was necessary to create these systems is they knew they were supposed to be free. You know, they rejected the, the pseudo-Christianity and pseudo-science that started to emerge to justify enslavement. They were like, nah, son, you know, this is not, <laughs> this ain't it. <laughs> and then they found community with other folks who felt the same thing, who felt the same way, and created those free spaces for themselves. That is so inspiring and so amazing, right? Yes, yes. And so as we think about these maroon communities, what are some of the specific cultural t- traditions that they were able to revive as they were like when we think about the maroon communities here in the US? Like what were they able to kind of revive and how can we follow their example in reclaiming our own cultural markers and traditions? what's has stood out to me the most in studying maroon communities and traveling to maroon communities because i didn't want to create something about maroons with no input from maroons like actual factual maroons is the role of the divine in everything and how they see themselves how they see each other how they structure their society like spirituality is very important and it's kind of part of that extended kinship network that they have your spirits and spirituality is also part of that and there's a lot of ancestor um, honoring and ancestor worship and like channeling ancestors for power and for motivation they typically have practiced their own spiritual beliefs i'm speaking of the ones who still exist today like in jamaica it's called mayal m-y-a-l and a kampong specifically of divination, like ritual dance to channel the ancestors. In Colombia, a lot of the maroons I met at Palenque also practice like a 
a version of Santeria. So Shango, Oshun, and things are, or and other deities are channeled a lot <laughs> in Palenque in their culture. And how, if you want to be a leader, you better have a strong connection to the divine. And be able to look out for your people. <laughs> and I would say those are, that's what has stood out to me the most. <laughs> to kind of reclaim. I would say, you know, don't want to step on the toes of folks. Let's learn about our immediate ancestors. Let's start there. Your grandparents are still alive. Ask them about their parents. Ask them about what their vision for their life was. What their hopes for their life was. And just start there. Because I've found the more I learn, like my grandmother, we knew it was coming. And before she passed, she was telling so many stories I had never heard before. And those stories honestly have propelled me to keep going forward. Let's run a business thing. <laughs> it's not for the faint of heart. <laughs> Girl, <laughs> it ain't. <laughs> So when my grandmother tells me about how her father, this is a, a powerful story, I think, so I'm going to tell it and how it inspired me. She, this is the guy on the side, her father, and this is the only time you're going to see me hype up a white man, okay, was a white man in Guyana. And, and I didn't know much about him other than he was a doctor and like well-respected in the community. But in my mind, he was a typical white man who had a woman of color as on his team kind of thing. And my grandma started to share more and more stories about him. And he was ostracized for marrying my great grandmother from the white community, but because he was a malaria specialist, he was still like called upon and respected in the community. So there was a malaria outbreak. This is post-slavery, but they still call them plantations. And a lot of it's black and indigenous folks dying. And so he told them you need to bear to dig deeper wells because, you know, the mosquitoes are just hanging out here on the surface, but go deeper. And the plantation owner said it's cheaper to let them die. So my great grandfather goes to the newspaper and this is back when, you know, newspapers had power to change a lot of things. And he was like, you need to run this front page story so that the British office gets a hold of it. Because at this point in their history, they didn't want to look bad, you know. We still going to do shady stuff on the back end, but we want to look like we're nice good people on the front end. And the newspaper was like, we don't want that smoke. <laughs> so, nope. So he bought the newspaper and ran the story. And they built Whoa. deeper wells. Whoa. Oh, that's, some, that's some G shit that's right there. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Great grandfather. Okay. Okay. Oh, okay. Powerful right. story. Okay, right. white man. We see you doing <laughs> okay. some good work. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> Person said, "This is the only time you'll see me right. hype the white man. Well, like, that's, okay. that's the reason to hype him, right there." Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that was when she told me that he could have very easily been like, "I'm already ostracized. I don't want to lessen my position even more by making these folks mad." And he was very much like, "Fuck y'all. <laughs> that's not what we don't do here." And so that when I'm, I've been very authentic for um, better or for worse. <laughs> and there are some negative consequences, like when you operate with integrity and all things in certain environments, but there's been times I'm like, maybe I should just chill, not say anything, not do anything, not get another target on my back. And hearing that story, it's like, no, 
Keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> it's in your blood. Mm-hmm. That is so powerful. This is so inspiring. And we're going to jump right. If we're going to jump into this more, but we want to shift up the energy real quick. Okay, Crystal? Mm-hmm. Okay. Want to shift it up a little bit. You probably, <laughs> you listen to the show, so you know what's coming. You already mm-hmm. know. <laughs> and Crystal, because we recognize, appreciate, and celebrate the multifaceted woman, and we believe that it's okay to be bougie and classy and ratchet, mm-hmm. you can still be elegant and dance to strip club music, right? Mm-hmm. So we want to invite you to the OU Flatchet segment. So do you take on the challenge? I take on the challenge. I got my... P Valley, you know, oh, spirit. Oh, okay, <laughs> okay, she ready. Okay, she ready. So you already know we're gonna ask you three questions. We're gonna share three sentence completions, and then we tried to find some photos of you on social media, but you do a good job of keeping <laughs> keeping your stuff on lock. Okay, so we found three photos. We're gonna okay. have you choose a number out of one and three. We'll reveal a photo, and if you can share with us some context behind the photo or something that we wouldn't know just by looking at the photo, that would be awesome. So we're okay. gonna jump right on in with the first question, which is. What's the best piece of wisdom or advice you've ever received? Well, the most recent one was, I think you should get tested for ADHD. (laughs) That was a mind-blowing experience. What made it mind-blowing? You know, I had perceptions of ADHD. It's just hyper kids kind of thing. When I started to research more and more, I was like, this is me (laughs) to a T and went through this. There's a blog called Black Girl Lost Keys. And so I found, uh, written by a Black woman, obviously, <laughs> I found a community of other Black women with ADHD. And so learning how we're underdiagnosed, especially if you're high performing or high, high achieving, yep, people don't mm-hmm. pay attention to all the other things. And so a grief process, because I'm like, man, if I had just found out a decade earlier, what would have that, what would have that meant? You know what I mean? For my relationships, for my way of showing up in the world. So that's the most prescient, but I would say a second one is a friend telling me when launching the business, I was like, what am I doing? (laughs) And she said, listen, the fear is always going to be there. You just got to push through it. And so that's what I've been doing. Just keep pushing through. Yes, yes. And yes to all that. Thank you for being so transparent as well about ADHD, we may have to have you on for another episode to dive into that because that's a whole yeah. other topic. Yes, so we'll is. circle back around on that. But thank you for sharing. I scream right, it from so the mountaintops now. Because <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm learning <laughs> yes. so much. Everyone else, learn too. It, it's important. <laughs> yes. So now we're going to dive, we're going to get a little ratchet. Okay. And I have four words for you twerk or two step. I want to say twerk, but the way my knees are set up, it would have to be a two-step. <laughs> yes, I, I feel you. I feel you. Back in the yes. day, it would have been twerk, but now, you know, drop it like it's lukewarm is all I could do. <laughs> <laughs> no judgment at all. See, I was going to say, I was going to offer you another option to say, are you going to hop on the pole? Because you talked about P-Valley, you know, you said you was in the P-Valley <laughs> element. So, okay, we got Drop it like it's lukewarm. We could do that. Ain't nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Ain't nothing wrong with it. So our next question for you, our final question before we jump into the sentence completion is, what is the sexiest item you own? So 
I'm a little thick, okay? So I find, I bought some, a little pajama set, but they have short shorts that I'm, I've been feeling myself when I look in them. It's from Busy's Intimates, another black owned business. And I just love how my booty look in the shorts. <laughs> okay, booty. Okay. <laughs> Come on, booty. Come on. Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. So our first sentence completion. One question or topic I wish people asked me about more often is. How can I help you? I find I am perceived as very independent and very strong. And thus I'll handle anything. I can handle anything that comes out. She don't need no help. <laughs> and I just wish people asked me more like, how can I help you? Says every black woman in the world. Yep. Well, our next sentence completion is so funny that this is the next sentence completion. It is for those that would like to help me. These are the ways that you can help me. How funny is that? Well, damn. Right? right? Like, what is this? Like, right here. Right. Okay. <laughs> Black women, we see each right. other. Yes, yes. Well, you know, I, money, okay. Um, for the business. <laughs> I would say, yes, definitely. Purchase the cards. I'm just really excited for folks to get these stories. So that's one way sharing the website with people or organizations you think would be interested in learning this type of history. I think we're at a point where people want something to grasp onto. I fundamentally believe most of us want to be better and live in a better society, but it's kind of like there's so much that could. What, where do you do? Where do you begin? And I wanted us to have something to root ourselves in. Um, so if you could just share share these stories with folks, share the website, um, that would be wonderful. And quick question for you, Crystal. When it comes to the hidden, the illustrated hidden history cards, is there a favorite story? I'm sorry, this is totally not, this is not a sentence completion, but you mentioned <laughs> the cards, so I got to know. Is there a favorite story or anything that comes to mind for you when you think about the cards? It fluctuates because these leaders, I'm just blown away by the bravery. So like Queen Nanny was very much, we don't burn all this shit down. Okay. <laughs> and literally did left a wake of plantations in her way. But right now I'm really fascinated by a Panamanian leader named King Bayano who fought a very long war against the Spanish and signed treaties with English and Scottish pirates to so they can join together to take down Spanish ships and rate them of their gold and silver. And from what we know, he was tricked into being captured. That's typical. If any leader was captured, it was typically through trickery. But he was so well respected by the Spanish because of like his skill, his skills in warfare and in strategy that they sent him into exile to live in Peru. And then it looks like he was sent to Spain to live off of his wealth. And I'm like, this is fascinating and not what I would expect. <laughs> so he's someone that I could see a movie of King Bayano, you know? Yeah, that would be dope. 
Yes. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's something that we need to see. Like, yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Okay. So our last sentence completion, what I love most about myself is, I would say my integrity. I feel like a narrative is if you reach a certain position, you're going to change. (laughs) So like when I was a more junior employee, it's like, well, you don't understand because you're not leading a team. Once you lead a team, you don't act like this. And then I led a team and I didn't act like that. (laughs) I was proud of myself. (laughs) And the same with starting a business. Like when you start a business, you're not going to want to pay people a living wage and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, nope, I still have the same values. So I've been... Because I approached it not with like, they're 100% wrong. I was like, I, I hope they're wrong. I don't know. You don't know what you don't know. And so I've just been proud of myself and I love myself and my integrity. Kudos to you. Go ahead, girl. Thank Go you. ahead. All right. So we have some pictures pulled up of you. Three pictures to be exact. So we'd love for you to choose a number out of one and three. And then we'll go ahead and reveal that photo. And we will have folks that are only tuning into the audio. So if you can describe the photo and then give us the context behind the photo or something we don't know. So feel free to choose your number and then we'll go ahead and share the photo with you. Okay, let's do number two. Number two. Oh, I think you'll like this one. Okay, let's go ahead and share it with you. And here we go. Oh, oh, this will be, this is perfect. (laughs) So for those who are on the audio, the picture is of me and my best friend, Megan Singleton, and our guide named Mr. Lawrence when we visited a kampong. A kampong is one of the maroon communities in Jamaica. So we're inside of a cave and another one of our guides is taking a picture of us from below. And this is called the Peace Cave. So a kampong's leader, Kujo, used to almost like meditate in the cave and listen for the British to come. They would put a rock, a big old rock in the road so they can hear when boots were rocking the rock. And then after all the British passed, they sound their abang and then they attacked them, you know, came out from camouflage, met them in the big grassy area. So the Peace Cave has a lot of spiritual significance, but it also has like strategic military significance. And this hike was intense. They were like, oh, because I was like, I'm out of shape, Mr. Lawrence. He was like, oh, it's easy. It's easy. I'm like, okay. It was a seven hour hike. <laughs> so what now? Yes. No One way? path. No, both round trip. Round, round trip. trip. Oh, geez. That's still a lot. Thank the path is not like a paved. You know, we're in California. We go on these hiking paths. It was not a hiking path. Okay. You can only walk single file. They had machetes. And so when we first met them, because it was all like WhatsApp communication. And I was like, shoot, we're going into the woods or into the jungle with three men with machetes. (laughs) Sorry, friend. But they were very protective of us. Their culture is very much not. The reason we felt safe even doing that is because they're very much like, nah, we got you, sis. (laughs) They use the machetes to cut staffs because I kept falling. So I had like a walking staff. So that's that picture it was a great experience that is so fascinating i feel like i have so many more questions now (laughs) you you talked about what was you talked about some of the things you noticed about their community what else was like really shocking for you when you were there because i can only imagine what it's like we're living in the world this highly technologically advanced world that we live in and then going there 
what else stood out to you when you were visiting them? I would say for Akambong and Palenque, which is in Colombia, just how the slight differences in gender dynamics and gender norms, differences for the better, no place is a utopia, but like the men in the Kambang, they were the ones that fussed over us and cooked us dinner. So like when we came back from our hike, they had prepared this wonderful feast. The women were just chilling until it was time to dance. Like women's roles were definitely more of a spiritual connector type of piece. So when they, the ritual dance started, then the women got up and were, because usually if you go to somebody's house, who's going to be the one fussing over to make sure you eat? This was the right. men, like the serving and catering to us. I was like, that this is nice. Amazing. That part, like, sign me up. <laughs> and they could cook for real cook, too. I was like, what's the name of this fish? I don't even know if I heard it correctly. It sounded like Maria. But it was the best fish I've ever had in my life. And that says a lot, because New Orleans is like my second home. Well, you know. That's, that's home. That's home, right. home for me. So right. I already know. I already know. <laughs> So that was, and Palenque also, just like the role of grandmothers. There's a saying, Palenquera is a mixture of African languages and like Spanish and Portuguese and things. So they all speak Spanish, but then they also have their own language of Palenquera. And so there's a saying that's like, my grandmother's hair is my bank account. <laughs> so they really do would hide and still to this day put money into the matriarch's hair. So when you like go on a porch and like, I, I want a dollar for a drink, she's reaching through her cornrows. Here you go, baby. <laughs> kind of orientation. So just, I don't, I don't even have the words to articulate it, but I felt seen as a woman, as a person. So not as a woman who's supposed to fill a role to hype you up as a man. Like you're your whole full spiritual, fully realized self, and we work together to maintain the safety and the cultural values of our community. That sounds incredible. Yes, it does. Oh my gosh, that's so yeah. Yes. And so Dr. Crystal, when you think of when you reflect on your travels and your studies, and you just talked about this, these incredible experiences in Jamaica and Colombia. What has been outside of those experiences? Is there anything else that has been surprising and or liberating that you've learned about our people? What's liberating for me is knowing that nothing is inevitable. Like the way things are, aren't the way things have to be. Things don't have to continue on this track. Like seeing the fugitive spaces that were created that are divergent has been liberating for me. It gives me hope. I'm not an optimist, actually, which is why I needed to hold on to something real. I needed to see something real and existing to be like, okay, we can do that thing. Yeah, we have to break down this whole system in order to, to live like them, right? Because mm -hmm. I think capitalism and maybe white supremacy and all that has a hold on this world. But that sounds so incredible to experience. Like, I would love to go and be a part of that. You know, that's just, oh, now I'm going to have to do some research and learn more about this, Dr. Crystal. But I'd love to know 
What are some of the ways you help black and brown communities tap into their cultural wealth? I'd say the gist is making shit clean. <laughs> so I used all the word liberation and all the things, but really I just want to like, what does it look like? And so helping folks tap into their community cultural wealth is helping them see themselves through different eyes. So like for my dissertation, one of my students, I don't call them participants. It sounds very distant. Um, so one of my students I was observing and collaborating with for my dissertation, she had an amazing ability to like a chameleon. And she was from North Philly, you know, low income community <clears throat> at a magnet school. She was one way in her neighborhood, a way that didn't jeopardize her future but also was cool with all the people <laughs> who could enact violence on her if they wanted to. So she had like a skill in navigating that environment. Then she's in the school environment and knew how to navigate the adults in the space. She didn't use this terminology, but she knew they were gatekeepers. So it's like, I'm going to navigate with these folks another way. I'm going to navigate with my peers in the school community another way. And so but when she would talk about herself, it's like, well, I've never, I've never left Philly. I don't know anything, blah, blah, blah. Girl, you just navigated a whole multiplicity of cultures in your community. And that's a skill to be able to read someone that quickly and know like, okay, this is what we're going to have to do here. And to know how to distance yourself, that is a, an amazing skill to have. So like making those things plain to folks. When you did ABCD, that's navigation. That's navigational capital, boo. When you talk about like, oh, my family's poor. We didn't, you know, we didn't have anything, but they really wanted me to go to college and school. Like you're, what you're telling me is your family was able to dream bigger dreams than what they could even see was possible. So like helping people see that in themselves and in their families and communities. That's amazing. And that's, that's beautiful. And we need we need more of that. And so speaking of creating more of that, how can we create developmentally appropriate activities to help black and brown kids feel proud of their lineage, like without perpetuating the trauma narratives? Because I go back to what you, the story you were sharing earlier, right? With, your student, your young black student who's like, why are we learning about why are we learning about slavery? And and really thinking about what are the things that we can do, particularly those those who don't have a background in education. So moms and dads and family members who are listening, but they don't have a background in education. How can mm -hmm. how can they create developmentally appropriate activities? to help their kids feel proud of their lineage? I mean, the big overarching theme is like telling the whole story. And what does that look like? One, when I'm planning or designing, I'm thinking about what is the emotional experience I want people to have as they navigate this activity. And the second one is like, what do I want them to leave with? Like, what's their takeaway? You know, if I were to talk to them a week later, What's the eight-year-old going to tell me was like the most exciting thing they learned or their, what they're holding on to after that space. Because from there, it helps me design experiences that are more balanced. So I have been 
I'm a big nerd all my life. Okay. Um, so George Washington Carver, we all know him, Peanuts. What we don't learn about him on purpose, okay, is all of his scientific advancements were because he wanted black farmers to find a sustainable crop so that they could emancipate themselves from the sharecropping system. So if I'm teaching this to developmentally appropriate, I would, we're, de- we're definitely going to talk about sharecropping and what that meant and why it was bad, why we want to escape from it. But what I want them to hold on to is the collective res- orientation that this scientist had that I'm going to use my skills to support my community and we're going to work together. So when I'm designing yep, we talk about sharecropping. Tell me about George Washington Carver and like, why do you think that was important that he worked with farmers? Like leaving kids with those questions and include a lot of pictures. Kids love kit pictures, images that they can see if you can find any video or medium and having them draw their own representation of things. This was amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Crystal. We appreciate you. I'm still processing all that you shared. <laughs> You're going to have me go do more research. We have to get, we have to pre-order these hidden history cards. So you all go out and support Dr. Crystal. Dr. Crystal, can you let our our listeners know where they can find you, how they can support you, remind them of what they can do to support so that you can have that support because you're doing great work and we need more people like you in the world, educating our children, educating the adults and just creating the amazing resources that you're creating. So please let us know where to support. So the website is emancipatededucation.com. Again, emancipatededucation.com. My Instagram page is emancipate underscore ed. Transparently, I don't update it as much as I should, especially with everything going on with the family. But one day, (laughs) I shall. But the website is where folks can access the cards and learn more about the services I offer, too. Thank you again so much, Dr. Crystal. And we hope that our listeners are taking away all of the gems and the knowledge that you shared with us. and. Uh, yeah, I just can't keep thanking you enough for sharing all of this with us. It, it, it's so important for us to know this information. Thank you so much for having me again. I'm so honored. <laughs> I can share about like these stories all day long. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you so much for engaging and creating a space to be authentic. When I saw I could cuss, I was like, oh, hallelujah. <laughs> Yes. Yes. <laughs> if you want to get off any cuss words in closing, you just want to say, let me feel free to just have, have your, space, your space to do it. We appreciate you, lady. Hey, lady. It's Terry here from the Cultivating Her Space podcast. I'm hosting a free podcasting masterclass where I'm going to teach you how to create your impactful podcast and how you can generate multiple streams of income. You can visit podcastwithterry.com to register for free. I hope to see you there. Thanks for joining us today. Please note that our show may contain conversations about self-help, advice, self-empowerment, and mental health, but is by no means meant to be a substitute for an ongoing formal relationship with a trained mental health provider. If you or someone you know is in need of mental health care, please visit the Therapy for Black Girls directory, Psychology Today, or contact your insurance provider.
If you liked what you heard and want to keep the conversation going, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at HerSpacePodcast. Or check out our website at HerSpacePodcast.com. And before we meet again, repeat after me. I attract abundance and prosperity with ease.